Hi, everybody. My name is Fraser Kane. I am the publisher of Universe Today, and this is your Weekly Space Hangout for June 28, 2012. This week, we're going to be talking about a terrifying gas cloud that is headed towards the center of the galaxy. Um, more news on exoplanets, sniffing for life on Mars, and what it's going to be like to land on Mars. Now, joining me this week are, uh, are three of my favorite space journalists. We've got Emily Lakdawalla from the Planetary Society. We've got Ian, Dr. Ian O'Neill from, uh, from Discovery Space. And uh, Jason Major from uh, Life, man, Universe Today and LightsInTheDark.com. There we go. He's omniscient. He's, he's everywhere. I, when, I, when I'm about to introduce Jason, I always forget because he's, he's kind of everywhere. National Geographic, Discovery Space, yeah. Hardest working man in, uh, in space journalism. So, uh, and for, for anyone who, who hasn't seen it, I'm going to do a, just a tiny little bit of log rolling here, which is uh, there was a really cool video that was a documentary that was produced by uh, Google uh, and released and announced yesterday during the keynote address at the uh, Google I.O. conference down in San Francisco. And it highlights the virtual star party that we do on Google+. Plus. So it's like a three-minute long documentary talking about all of the telescopes and astronomers and how we bring this all together and broadcast it on Google+. And so if you haven't seen it, uh, I'm, you can see it in my stream. We've got a post over on Universe Today, and it's pretty great, and I'm really proud of it. And I'm really proud as well of all of the astronomers that have been that have been joining us, so definitely check it out. Um, yeah, it was really cool. It was really cool. All right, well, let's get rolling first. Uh, Jason, I'm going to start with you, uh, and we're going to talk about a terrifying uh, gas cloud that is uh, on its way to the center of the galaxy. And when this happens, what's going what's to happen? When this happens, well, that's, and that's the trick. That's what we're trying to find out. You know, what's going to happen when this gas cloud actually reaches the monster in the middle of the Milky Way. In, in the middle of the Milky Way, uh, our galaxy, and, and a lot of galaxies actually, they're finding, there's a supermassive black hole. I mean, there's, there's black holes, and then there's supermassive black holes. This one here, uh, that's at the center of our galaxy, is approximately the mass of four million suns. So you take all of that mass, and you smash it down into an area um, I'm not quite sure what the, what the radius of this thing is, but it may be around uh, uh, something that would fit within the orbit of the planet Mercury. So you have all of that mass smashed down in there, and you're going to have a really, really massive object and basically an enormously powerful black hole. So the problem with black holes is you can't really see them because they don't, well, the, the, the jury's out on this, but they don't emit radiation that is, is visible outside of what gets chucked out because when it comes down to it, they're kind of sloppy eaters. So astronomers using the VLT telescope uh, over at ESO's Paranal Observatory have spotted a giant cloud of charged gas particles heading towards this very same black hole. And it, it's not, you say a cloud, and you think of something that's up in the sky, but this is actually an enormously massive cloud. It's, um, it's somewhere along the lines of three times the mass of Earth. So it's a, it's a good-sized cloud of material. It's uh, hotter than the surrounding gas that's, that's already uh, around that black hole. And it's moving at something like 8 million kilometers an hour, heading straight towards this thing. And they've been watching it for a few years. It's been speeding up. And at some point, 
this month, it's going to be around, uh, I think the estimate was something like 36 light hours from the supermassive black hole, uh, which has the name Sagittarius A star. So that's, that's what they call this, this really, really dense object. Um, what's going to happen when it reaches there? They're not quite sure, and that's why, that's why this is so exciting. We're going to actually be able to watch a black hole feed. And it's going to, I mean, estimates are, uh, say that it's going to be pulled uh, into a long strand um, in a process called spaghettification. Uh, in doing so, this fast cloud is going to be ripped to shreds. It's already started to break up a little bit. And it, in doing so, uh, getting ripped apart, it's going to be throwing out x-rays and all sorts of other uh, cool radiation that, that, that they can keep an eye on. So that's the process. And, and here in the picture that uh, Fraser has got put up, uh, or Emily has put up here, you can see the movement of the gas cloud uh, between 2002 and 2011. So it's just kind of, you know, it's poking along over there. But in reality, it's going really, really fast. So yeah, and, and this is, I mean, this is the situation, right, where, where these events, they, they put out so much energy that you can even detect fairly minor amounts of material being consumed by these, these supermassive black holes. And, mm -hmm. it, it, the, you know, it's the bursts of gamma radiation that come, as, you know, in the surrounding area around this, around this black hole. And so I guess being able to, but I, but I think the more incredible science here is the fact that they're able to spot this gas cloud on its way to reaching the supermassive black hole, and th and then they're going to be able to just really be able to tighten this up and see, okay, if this amount of material makes its way into a black hole, this is the amount of energy that we see released. This is the way it gets spread out. This is the way it's, it gets destroyed and, and shredded. So, so this is this is I think one of the first times they've been able to really they have an, you know any kind of knowledge in advance. But I mean, kudos to the science team to be able to detect this gas cloud, what, 30,000 light years away, this close to the supermassive black hole. It's an unbelievable mm -hmm. scientific I mean, discovery. Previously, the only thing that they've been able to observe with uh, Sagittarius A star is the, the motion of big stars that go around it. And that's, that's really how they were able to kind of pinpoint where it is. Uh, now, they're going to be seeing matter actually falling into the, uh, the accretion disk of a black hole, and, and, and what happens when it reaches that, that point of no, no, no return uh, where, you know, stuff really starts to break apart and things get, get wild. And I know there's some recent research as well that, that is starting to overturn some of the thinking that, that supermassive black holes uh, are, you know, when we see these actively feeding, these quasars, right, these actively feeding supermassive black holes, that they've been doing that for a long time, and now it seems more that they've been they've been doing it a little more intermittently. That it's more in in bursts of feeding, they go active and then quiet again and active again, as opposed to necessarily active for long periods of time. So, so I think with this, we'll really get a chance to see this this burst in action. When's this expected to actually happen? Well, it's um, like I said. It, what, <laughs> December December twenty first, perhaps two thousand and twelve. Yeah. Well, the feeding process is estimated to uh, it's it's going to take it's going to take a while, and it may actually take place over the course of ten years. So it's it's something that they'll be able to. Um, it's not like a blink and you'll miss it type thing. You know, they'll they'll have they'll be able to really see what's happening here uh, uh, for a while. But like, when do they think it might start? Um, you know, I'm I'm not exactly sure when when it's actually going to do the 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 falling in part, and I think that's that's what they're trying to find out. They 
they know, like I said, this month, it's 36 light hours away from the black hole. And that's, that's close in astronomical terms, although it's still twice as far as where Voyager 1 is from us. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a long way away in human terms, but it's still really close in astronomical right. terms. But, but it, you know, within the next few decades, it'll happen. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is by, well, by next year. Oh, by next year. Okay, yeah. yeah. By, yeah. by 2013, they think this, this process will begin. And then they'll have another 10 years to, to watch. That's all I wanted to hear. Next year. Or the end of this year. Or yeah. the end of this year. That's great. Well, so that, that's around really December 21st. No, yeah, because you mentioned that um, it could, it's going to produce like X-rays and possibly gamma rays. I mean, I'm sure people are thinking, hmm, that's kind of scary. I mean, does that is there a threat to us? I mean, say if our black hole suddenly gets all hungry and turns into a quasi quasar and suddenly starts generating all this radiation. I mean, are we far enough away? That's why I want to know. I'm going. I'm going to use my non-scientific background and say yes. We are very safe from a distance of 25,000 light years away. That's all I need. <laughs> don't cancel your plans. Don't max out your credit cards. Unless you really want. I mean, seriously, the only event that could hurt us from that far away would be a, a gamma ray burst. You know, and it happened to be aiming directly aiming at us. Aiming directly at us, yeah. you know, right, yeah. right down the channel. And, and those don't happen very often, and there's, you know, likely no stars. So, so in case anyone doesn't realize the level of sarcasm that's going on here, Dr. Ian O'Neill, um, uh, there is absolutely no problem, no risk, no chance. Uh, all we'll get is maybe some slight detection of some gamma rays and some x-rays. Are we clear? Very cool. And also, because they're trying to, um, they're trying to actually image um, a black hole. This is this is one area of study that I've I found captivating. Is um, astronomers want to hook up many radio um, radio antennae across the world, um, a um, interferometer, and they want to aim it at a Sagittarius A star, and they want to actually start being able to image the event horizon surrounding. The black hole. I mean, imagine being able to see the disk of yeah. the sphere of influence of a black hole. That'd be phenomenal. Well, if this they could do it in time for the speeding, that'd be even better. <laughs> this is the big question, right? Which is, how big is the event horizon? How big is the accretion disk? How big is the gap around these supermassive black holes? It's been thought that the that the the um, the event horizon around a supermassive black hole could be the size of the solar system. That you could drift into a into the essentially the point of no return of a supermassive black hole, be traveling for the better part of a couple of weeks, but n you know not even realize and not really feel huge tidal forces, and yet you're never going coming back out. You know, you and the light are never coming back out. So anyway, let's move on. But it is really exciting. I think that's great, Jason. Um, all right. Well, so Ian, uh, you've got a couple of stories you wanted to talk about. Let's let's first talk about sniffing for uh, for gas for for farts on Mars. <laughs> yeah, I resisted that light in the title. I can't, I can't help it. <laughs> Damn it. Um, yeah, so smelly Martians. Um, no Martians, yeah. Now this is, is, it's a rather elegant idea uh, coming from uh, scientists from the University of Canterbury in um, New Zealand. And they've been working on a, on a means to perhaps detect microbial life on Mars. Now, we're sending robots to Mars. We're, you know, trying to do remote sensing. We're trying to find any um, hints that there may be or may have been life on Mars, or at least 
Um, what we're trying to do with presently is trying to find the components of life. So perhaps what gave Mars the ability to produce life perhaps in the ancient past. Um, but these scientists, they came from the University of Canterbury, they came up with a rather elegant solution to trying to find alien life on Mars. Now, they were studying, uh, I think it was actually a separate geological study into the, um, the process of, let me get this right, olivine hydrolysis. Hydrolysis? Yeah, hydrolysis or serpentine serpentinization. <laughs> serpentinization. If That's only it. we had a geologist here. <laughs> Damn it. Okay, over to Emily. <laughs> um, I could chat so, a bit about serpentinization if you want me to. <laughs> just the fact that you can say it very quickly without sort of having to read it off a screen, I think is fantastic. Yeah, I'm squinting. Even we'll we'll definitely have to go into more detail in a second. We'll let Ian okay. uh, sort of... I'll tell you what, just tell me when I get it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> just, just, just cut in there saying it. Yeah. You're wrong. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> stick with the sun. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, they, they're going to—they are doing some, um, you know, uh, really—they're um, uh, doing experiments on this really weird rock theory thing um, that I can't even describe. Um, but they were detecting the the emission of methane and hydrogen from the process, and basically the process is the interaction of water with um, olivine, which is a, um, a rock mineral. Um, and so basically, by looking at this process and measuring the amount of gas given off they were able to measure a set ratio of the amount of methane and the amount of hydrogen produced. And for a non-biological system, so basically with no microbes involved, they worked out that there is a very set ratio of the uh, methane to, or hydrogen to methane. Now, they thought, oh, okay, that's kind of interesting. Let's now take this to the wild. Let's take this into the field and let's look at, say, a hydrothermal vent what's the ratio of methane versus hydrogen? And they actually found, because there are microbes present, they're producing methane because they're metabolizing uh, minerals within the rock. And so they are, their waste product is methane. And so that's quite a good tracer to find out if there's um, microbial life present in a sample. And so they took the, the, the concept and thought, okay, well, if we can detect this ratio difference, this slightly more, this, this slightly higher level of methane being produced by the presence of microbial life, how about we just send a sniffing robot to Mars and sit it near an ancient um, hydrothermal vent because we know that Mars once had geological activity and there's some low-level stuff now, but ultimately if we stick it near a hydrothermal vent, let it sniff the air, see if that ratio is the same as what we'd expect in a non-biological uh, environment or a biological environment and just see if the ratio is different. And their, their hypothesis is if there is or was life on Mars, the methane produced by these uh, microbes deep within the, the, the rocks of, uh, just below the surface, the, the leakage of the methane that they produce through their metabolism, they would have, uh, that could possibly be detected. Now, I don't know what kind of shelf life, I mean, because I know that if um, methane is, is put into the atmosphere on Mars, it gets broken down very, very quickly by ultraviolet light, which is kind of exciting because there's been other studies that shows that there's a lot of methane, well, there's, a, there's certainly a, a, um, a detectable amount of methane in the Martian atmosphere, which has led to the debate of whether it's produced by geological processes or by microbial processes. So these guys in Canterbury, they're, they're putting together a means to 
differentiate between the two. And if they can measure this difference in ratios, perhaps they can detect the presence of life. And I just find that really kind of cool. Yeah, and then this is one of the situations where I think the evidence is, is pretty compelling. I mean, they've detected possibly trace levels of methane in the in the atmosphere around Mars, and this is actually they've you know very the various space agencies have actually put together ideas for missions that will go back and try to detect these these trace elements or these you know these trace amounts of methane from space, and this you know you can use various you know spectroscopic analysis of the of the atmosphere to try and detect the methane and detect the the various processes going on, and especially if you can create a spacecraft that's that's specifically designed to do this. I mean, they just used Mars Express and kind of pushed it to its to its limits, but to actually create a spacecraft. So, so this idea of putting a lander down right next to a vent and seeing if you can detect that—that's taking it to the to the next level. Does Curiosity have any ability to to suss out um, these gases in the atmosphere? Oh my yes. So um, that's what uh, a sample analysis at Mars, the SAM instrument. It's one of the gigantic um, laboratory analysis instruments inside the body of Curiosity. Um, it's uh, it's all about um, carbon and what forms it's in and um, even isotopic ratios. So um, that's one of the, the big goals of that particular instrument is to try to understand this question. And then there's also the MAVEN mission to Mars um, and, and looking at methane in the atmosphere is one of the goals of the MAVEN mission. At the same time, there I've, I have heard other scientists kind of doubting these methane results because after all, they're done with uh, ground-based surveys which have to look through methane in Earth's atmosphere. So they have to correct for that. And if what you're detecting is um, smaller than the corrections that you're making, then you have to take your detections with a, with a grain of salt. Do you think the MAVEN mission <laughs> would definitively just figure it out once and for all? Um, nothing is ever figured out <laughs> definitively once and for all. Uh, I don't actually know. Um, I would have to read up a little bit on the science goals and the instruments on MAVEN to answer that question. So, yeah. Now, Emily, on no. Gail, the, the Gail Crater, um, are there any uh, proposed hydrothermal vents uh, in the region of where Curiosity will be landing? Uh, not uh, specifically that I'm aware of, but there's such a diversity of rock types. And, you know, we didn't, <clears throat> we didn't understand that that home plate was a zone of hydrothermal alteration until we really got right on top of it. So um, I think that Gale Crater is so deep, and um, we're going to be digging right at its roots, so I would be actually shocked if we didn't see hydrothermal alteration evidence for it in the past. Um, as far as present goes, I don't know. But um, I'm sure we'll find evidence for past hydrothermal activity. But even if life is found, you know, microbial life is discovered on Mars, you know, perhaps in those deep vents, etc., that still doesn't provide, I think, that holy grail of definitive evidence of that life is common in the universe because, you know, because there's a possible connection between a, a source between Earth and, and Mars that, well, that right. possibly you'd have to microbial... Be to, yeah, you'd have to be able to differentiate. Um, although, if it looks somewhat similar, but yet very dissimilar, like for instance, let's say it's based on RNA, but um, the genetic structure is really super different. Um, that would be good evidence for the transpermia hypothesis, and if transpermia works, then um, that also kind of raises hope for life elsewhere in the solar system, just because it's easier to move it around. Um, yeah, so yeah. Universe, I don't know. But right, but that's the whole point, that it doesn't necessarily say whether or not life is, is common around other solar systems, only that life seems to be able to move quite a bit within our own solar system. Yeah, statistics of small numbers are always a real problem. Yeah, but and then of course there's there's still this, 
you know, even if, I mean, there's, a, there's another theory as well that, that perhaps we're leaving a trail of organic material behind the solar system as it moves around the galaxy. So again, you could, you know, because there's so, such a great time frame, you could still have life traveling from world to world even within the whole Milky Way. So, so I think, you know, to actually detect life is a fantastic step to, to be able to study and actually get to the point you could do some kind of genetic uh, study on it would be would be amazing, and perhaps we could trace back the tree of life. But at the same time, I wonder if you can detect in the chemicals some completely alien process that you could could you could you tell that right from the methane and say, okay, in fact, you know, the output chemicals here are are just not possible to be created on on Earth. So there must be some different life form that what about Titan? Different way. You know, what about Titan? A lot of methane there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So anyway, I you know I think this is all really interesting. We're moving into hyper speculation mode. So I, I this is probably the point in the conversation where I should mention that Curiosity is not intended to def to look for life on Mars. It is looking for past habitable environments on Mars. So that's and the Mars rovers were only designed to last for three months. So um, uh, so anyway, but let's that's talk about different. I, I know, I know, I know. Uh, <laughs> no, no, but come on, Emily. I mean, NASA and ESA do a fantastic job of taking and pushing every piece of hardware and software they have at their disposal well, way I know, but beyond its intended purpose. One of the distinctions though that they're possible. one of the distinctions that they're making there, one reason that this is important is because Viking, those landers were explicitly sent to Mars to search for evidence of life. And they failed to find I mean there's there's some people who say yes they did found it, but most people think they failed to they certainly failed to find definitive evidence of life on Mars. Um, and I've talked to Matt Gollenbeck about this, and he's like, you know, it was basically NASA swung for the fences and they struck out. Um, and so if we say that Curiosity is being sent to Mars to detect life and then they don't, then everybody will say, well, that was $2.5 billion wasted. And that's not the point. Um, the John Grotzinger, who's the head of the mission, the science team on the mission, points out that finding evidence for ancient life on Earth is actually insanely difficult. Just finding one tiny bacterium in a 3.4 billion year old rock is a PhD right there. If you do it, you're, you're set. And so um, even if, it, if fossils exist in the rocks that Curiosity is going uh, to be looking at, the odds of finding one are really slim. So it's not like Curiosity can walk all over the place and turn over all the rocks the way an Earth geologist does. So. Um, it, it's really important, I think, for us to emphasize that finding life is not the goal because chances are, even if, if it's there, it wouldn't see it. It's not designed to do that. I feel like my expectations have been well and properly managed, but I am still... Um, You've been paying attention. <laughs> I am... Uh, no, you know what? Yeah, I mean, I just see what I... The story always is, and, you know, we report on this, which is, is, oh, hey, what a surprise, the controllers of the Mars Express or whatever have figured out a way to make that spacecraft search for methane in the atmosphere of Mars, that it wasn't what they expected. Or there was even, um, there was one Mars orbiter uh, where they figured out a way to tilt the spacecraft and, and capture an image over a longer period of the orbit, captured at an angle and then directly over and then as it was trailing away and double the resolution of the image. That, that once you have hardware and software on the ground, actually on site, 
the ingenuity of the engineers takes over and and they're able to find things that they never expected. So so I agree that that is not the intention of curiosity, but at the same time, you know, I think that people should be watching carefully and I always like to bet on the ingenuity of engineers to come up with clever solutions. Well, while that's true, I think if they were looking for fossils, they would have sent a different set of instruments. I I I I agree. And I just, I think that they're going to do a lot with what they've got. So that's it, you know. We, Thank you, we, Senator Kane. <laughs> <laughs> no, I understand, you know, there's political ramifications and, and all that. I totally understand that you can't just go and send the, you know, that, that the Viking mission was a real life, was a real lesson learned by everybody on the, on the, the process, that, that it did a, a lot of things, but it also failed to find the one thing it was looking for, that, that incremental steps in everything is the way to go. So anyway, I'll, I'll get off my soapbox. Um, but Emily, let's talk about Curiosity some more, because Curiosity is, is now only a couple of months away from, from reaching Mars, and the landing is going to be really exciting. Yeah, it will be, and um, there's a lot of, I think, misunderstanding about how this works, and people kind of freak out because of that, because they're, they're mostly concerned about one particular step. I've got a photo of it right here that I'm going to share. Um, this, this is the step they're scared of. This is called Skycrane. This is where um, a rocket jetpack uh, attached to the rover actually lowers the rover on three rather thin-looking nylon cables. And everybody looks at this and says, those guys are freaking out of their minds. Why are they doing this? Um, and why, you know, why change things from the way that it's worked in the past? Um, and there's, there's several reasons um, to change things. The, the main ones that they were trying to do with Curiosity, there's actually three reasons they had to change things from the way that they did in the past. One is because the weight of the rover is much, much heavier than anything previously landed on Mars, except for the Vikings. It's actually somewhat similar to the Vikings, except that this has got to be a mobile platform where the Vikings were, um, were standing still. So you have to somehow get this incredibly heavy thing on the ground with wheels on the ground um, without having to land much of any extra equipment. The, if you recall, the Mars Exploration Rovers were packaged inside this kind of origami tetrahedron that unfolded, it had airbags all around it, and the rovers rolled off. The actual mass of the rover was really, really tiny compared to all the stuff that actually landed on Mars. When you move up to something bigger, you can't scale up the airbags. So you had to be able to land all of that mass in a different way. The second thing was that they wanted to make the landing ellipse smaller. Um, uh, landing ellipse is the sort of area where you have a 99.9% .9 confidence that your landing system is going to put the spacecraft down inside that area. Um, for most, for all previous missions, the landing ellipse has been really, really long and skinny. Um, the the uh, spacecraft comes in along a certain trajectory and it's aimed at a certain point, but depending on how puffy or non-puffy the Mar Mars' atmosphere is on that particular day, it can either go way short or go way long inside that landing ellipse. And so, uh, and, and so what they wanted, they needed to shrink that landing ellipse because that whole landing ellipse needs to be safe for the rover to land, which means it's got to be relatively rock-free, have low slopes, no major hills or craters poking down into it. And in the past, that has really sharply limited where spacecraft can be put. For Curiosity, they wanted to make it really small, only about 20 or 25 kilometers across. The third thing is that they wanted to be able to land the package at much higher elevations than in the past. 
In the past, you have to use an awful lot of Mars's atmosphere in order to slow your spacecraft down, and that's precluded landing at any elevation above, like, I, I forget what it is, it's like one or two kilometers below the mean elevation of Mars. And that also has sharply limited where spacecraft could land in the past. So that was the three things, heavyweight, um, smaller landing ellipse, and um, higher elevation. The ironic thing is that, or one ironic thing, is that they, they managed to accomplish a landing system that can do this, but they didn't wind up needing the high elevation part of it because they picked a landing site that is at one of the lowest spots on Mars. So uh, that's actually kind of wasted capability for the landing system. But isn't part of it as well that they don't want to um, kick up a lot of dust when the rover gets placed down that could that could ruin its equipment and so yeah well that's what sky that's one of the things that um that sky crane is for yes sorry jason um, can you actually play that animation well is that going to i work? don't know I'll, I'll give it a shot yeah um, let's see what while, while emily's talking we can see some of the some of the pieces of the of the animation yeah try playing it see, yeah see what sky crane that will that will be lowering uh msl down yeah so just play it, and then and then, I'll, and well, then while Emily is, is talking, hopefully okay. this will... Let's, this let's will start from a little bit earlier, because most of the rest of it, the, the, actually the real innovation, there's two major innovations. Skycrane is one of them, but the other one is what's called guided entry. So if we can okay. go back to the part sure. where it's uh, just beginning to approach Mars, um, even before that. Oh, you got the little puffs of, uh, yeah. of, of propellant coming out as it's... Right. So uh, I don't know if this... This is working great, I think. Yeah. yeah. To people, me on the people, people who are watching this can tell me if it's not working, but I think the animation is coming through. Okay, so what you're seeing right now, if you're seeing the animation, is you see all those little puffs of rockets behind the spacecraft. It is actually steering itself as it falls through the atmosphere. This is absolutely brand new. No other mission to Mars has ever done this before. Um, it is... Um, uh, previous ones have fallen ballistically, just like cannonballs. They couldn't control where any, you know, once they got to the top of Mars's atmosphere, they couldn't control where they were going. This one is actually flying. It is, it's going to be the first aircraft on Mars. It could even fly uphill, you know, or up, up in elevation in order to fly out all those atmospheric variations that we're talking about. So here's the parachute. This is very similar to all past missions. It's a larger parachute than in the past, but it's basically the same as a Viking parachute otherwise. Um, when they dropped the heat shield, they exposed the rover as well as a radar um, ground detection system that helps it understand where the ground is. That's the scariest point in the, in the whole process for me, is when it drops out of the back shell, um, it actually has to free fall for one complete second before they turn on the engines so that it doesn't re-contact, re-encounter the back shell. So it, it actually accelerates quite a bit during that one little step. So now they're descending under eight rockets the same way that other uh, rocket-assisted spacecraft have descended in the before. And uh, Fraser, you're right, the, the main reason for Skycrane is um, it's in part to prevent the, the rockets from impinging on the ground um, and from you know, puffing up dust and otherwise uh, contaminating the rover. It's also because it, you just need a way to separate that jetpack from the rover no matter what. Um, and it's hard to do that if the whole thing is actually sitting on the ground. It's actually much easier and safer to separate it when they're, um, when they're at some distance apart. Did you stop it, Jason? Yeah, I, I, let, her, I let her continue. Okay. So they're, at this point, they're actually only headed to the ground at, at uh, three-quarters of a meter per second. That's a half a human walking speed, so it's very slow at this point that they're setting the thing down. And they're also setting it down vertically. No other Mars mission has ever come in vertically before. They've all come in at shallow angles. Um, so it'll set it on the ground, and what happens at that point is as soon as the spacecraft or the, the jetpack detects that 
the load is off of those cables. Pyros cut the cables and the thing flies away. It just crashes somewhere. It just crashes somewhere. And they don't show that part in the animation. I, I wish they would. It will puff. <laughs> yeah, it would look like a wily e. coyote puff, I think. I think it would be awesome. But, uh, you could almost imagine that be the first target, right? Is to go find its... No, no, no. You would not want to do it. There would be that's unexploded ordnance. That's like walking into a minefield. That is a really bad idea. All right. <laughs> um, so you know that it's a it's a certainly a complicated process, and there's more pyros being fired uh, in this one than there have been for previous landings because there's a lot of steps. I think um, they said there were 76 different pyrotechnic devices on there. That's right. Um, and so it's uh, it, it's certainly complicated, but it's um, it's what's enabled them to land a mo mobile package this heavy on the surface of Mars. And the actual touchdown is going to happen at a very low speed. They have um, uh, there's a lot of sort of leeway in the in that terminal descent part where they're descending at a at a fairly low speed, about 20 meters per second for most of the end of it. Um, and that part they're going to be pinging the ground the whole time. They're descending vertically. And so they can um, sort of use that, they call that the accordion part of the descent. They can just ride out, however, if they're too close at that point, they just go straight into the last part, or they can descend at 20 meters per second for a while. Once they detect that they've gotten within 21 meters of the ground, that's when they slow to that three quarters of a meter per second descent. And it's really very slow and gentle by the time they touch down. I have seen some videos of them doing tests on the rover landing on some kind of scary surfaces, like a 30-degree slope with a rock uh, underneath the middle uphill wheel. And it's, it makes a, a clatter. It makes a huge racket when it, when it contacts the ground. But it also, it sticks. It sticks like Velcro. The thing does not slide anywhere. Um, it's really incredibly stable. So um, they really have done their homework um, on, on making sure that they can deal with all of those kinds of contingencies. Emily, is this that, that, that um, detector at the bottom of MSL right here, that little camera that you zoom into yeah. that, that says where it is and how far it is? Yeah, that one is not actually, so that's not the radar part. That's, that's an instrument called DIMES, um, Descent Imager for Mars something or other. I forget what that stands for. Um, but the point of that camera is to provide context so that they can locally can figure out exactly where the rover is within its landing site within um, uh, hours of them touching down. Um, in the past, it's usually taken longer than that. It's usually taken days because the images that we have of the surface are of too low resolution to, to be able to be perfectly confident. But now that we have high-rise data covering it, they're going to be able to match those dimes images to the location of the lander fairly quickly. Um, they are going to try to get high-rise images of the rover as soon as possible after it lands, but the orbit is not that favorable. So it might be a week before they get a good picture from orbit. Um, just because the MRO is not going to pass over the right spot on the surface of Mars to get a good photo. And so if people want to plan their summer vacations to make sure that they get a chance to participate in the, uh, uh, in the sort of festivities, uh, what, when will everything start to happen? Well, everything will start to happen. It, it all kind of unfolds very quickly on August 5th. Um, the actual landing happens at 10.30 p.m. my time. Um, so it's actually 1.30 a.m. Eastern time, and, and it's, it's August 6th uh, for most of the world. But for the, the place uh, where the mission's being controlled from, it's August 5th. Um, and it's really, you know, these terminal events, they unfold in just the, the final hours before landing. So 
Um, I do expect a ridiculous load on our servers at that time. We're going to be having a huge event called Planet Fest here in uh, Pasadena. Um, and there's also going to be satellite Planet Fest all over the world, and we're still looking for people who want to have basically house parties or yeah. parties at planetariums or whatever. It's sort yeah, of and we're going to do, we're going to probably do a hangout to participate in it as yeah. well. So I think we'll be covering it on Google Plus at the same time and, and pitching in. Yeah, and since the last landing, there's so many more tools for doing this kind of sharing that it's okay if our website goes down under the load because I'll be tweeting, we'll have Hangouts, I'll I'll probably do a landing Tumblr instead of putting it on my blog yeah. because just I I do not expect our website to be able to survive the. I onslaught. highly recommend that you want to <laughs> offload it over to Google Plus or yeah. YouTube or whatever you can, but yeah. but yeah, no, definitely. Um, and that was and that was fantastic, by the way, Emily. That was such a great uh, explanation of the landing sequence. <laughs> well, thanks, and I should mention that I have um, one blog entry, a part of a four-part series that I'm going to be doing explaining all of this in excruciating detail. I'm posting the next step on Friday that I realized I spent 2,000 words explaining what happens in two minutes on this mission. So it's uh, there's a lot of things happening in a very short period of time. And also, if people haven't seen it yet, there's a really great video that was produced by NASA covering the same thing and some interviews with some of the scientists. And it's... And you know, it looks like it was done as a movie trailer, the music, and I don't know whether that bothered you or you thought that was awesome. I thought oh, that I was think it's awesome. awesome. Um, and it, in fact, it really felt like uh, NASA did a really good job of, of getting across the excitement and the energy and that this isn't some stuffy space agency, you know, with some scientists. Like, they, they, they're pushing the frontiers and they've been able to build the production quality into their promotional material at the same time. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, and I think that they're actually doing a good job of um, using what they produce in a variety of different ways because all of the animation parts of that video are part of the animation that Jason just showed, which is actually a very precise, exact demonstration of how all the parts work. And, of course, that animation is the one that I like because I'm a geek about that stuff. Yeah. But then they repurpose that material with the narration and the close-ups and stuff to produce a video that other people would like to share. So I think they're doing a really good job with yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. Kudos to the NASA team that, that worked on that whoever did the production of that did a fantastic job and and they should do all of that like that it was great um, uh, got a question for you lady Pembroke wants to know are there still tickets for Planet Fest uh, I'm yes I, I have not heard that that we're getting short on tickets where, where, where do people get tickets planetary.org slash planet fest um, or there's a link from our homepage and, of course and how much do they cost uh, I would have to look that up for you but I will do it right now all right um, and it's going to be. Well, are you going to be in the neighborhood? You're going to be in the neighborhood, Ian. Right? You're in. Okay. You're in LA. You're going to go. Yeah, because at the same time, um, the Mars Society conventions in Pasadena as well, and that's um, in. I think it's like from the second to the fifth of uh, of August. So I'm going to be. Well, hopefully, I'm going to be emceeing the event again because I tend to. I tend to do that every year. Um, I have on the fifth. I hope to be where the action is. So that sounds great. Yeah. And Jason, I'm not sure where you're going to be. Online with us. Not here. No. I will be. Actually, August 5th, uh, I'm going back East Coast by that time. So yeah. making, a, making a little move. Cool. Um, so, so if anyone has any questions, we can stick around for another couple of minutes. Uh, so if anybody has any questions for anyone on the team for any of the stories that we discussed, I should have mentioned this beforehand, uh, we're happy to answer them. Uh, you, can, you can post a question either on the Google Plus chat where this is being broadcast on Google Plus. You can post it on YouTube uh, if you're watching us there. And you can also uh, post it on your question on Twitter with the hashtag SpaceHangout and we will spot it and be able to 
to answer your question there. So, um, uh, Hanny, Hannah Tankery asks, are there any videos of the tests they did on the landing MSL? I think the videos that you were talking about, Emily, watching it on different different landing surfaces. Are those videos available somewhere? I have not seen them. I saw those at the at the landing site selection meetings that they held for um, Mars Science Laboratory. So I don't. Uh, I have not seen those on the internet. No. As as a you know, I'm not your editor, but I think like an editor, and I think that would be a great blog post that you should you can get your hands on those videos and actually do a post on it. That would be. Yeah. Great. The thing is, another thing that NASA is really careful about doing is not releasing content to just one person. If they're gonna release it, it's gonna be on their website for everybody to use. So you don't get exclusives like that. <laughs> um, uh, let's see, and I think that, by the way, I think, you know, if you're looking for a solution for how to showcase the videos, I think what, what Jason just did, that worked perfectly. Everyone was saying that looked great. So, okay, good. So, Jason, what did you do to show that video off? Basically, I just, I just pulled it up on a separate window and, um, and then popped over here and screen shared it. That's it? Yeah, okay. Excellent. Yeah, that worked great. Um, uh, Planet Fest ticket prices about thirty dollars a day for adults with discounts for members. Um, kids under eight or uh, kids under eight are free. Kids under nine are free. Um, discounts for seniors and stuff as well. So ticket pricing is a little complicated, but you're not going to spend more than sixty bucks. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, you know, I don't see any questions yet, so I'm going to give you one last uh, kick at this, Ian, uh, which is to talk a bit about some exoplanets. Yeah, you had you had, uh, you had another story that you wanted to talk about. So yeah, in fact, because this week is a um, a big week for exoplanet stories, um, particularly um, uh, atmospheric, uh, the atmospheres of exoplanets. And this one story that we published actually on Discovery News this morning. Um, in fact, before I even woke up, this is kind of cool. Um, but basically, Hubble is reporting that it managed to detect the atmosphere of an exoplanet, which is about 60 light years away. And the exoplanet is called a very memorable name, as always, uh, HD 189733b. Um, it's, as I say, it's located like 60 light years away. And what happened was when it was first discovered, I think it was back in 2010, I think, I think it says. Uh, they didn't detect an atmosphere around it. It's supposed to be a, it's apparently it's a, um, a, a large, um, like a, a supersized Jupiter, and it's, it orbits very, very close to a star, apparently 13 times closer than the planet Mercury orbits our sun. So it's, it's, a, it's basically a hot Jupiter. It orbits really, really close to a star. And it, they didn't detect an atmosphere. But then um, with the collaboration with, um, I think it was um, the Swift Observatory, yeah, the Swift Space Observatory um, discovered that the star kicked off a massive flare. Now, this flare was an X-ray flare, so it basically pumped out a load of X-rays. And then almost immediately after this flare kicked off, Hubble analyzed the uh, signature of the exoplanet orbiting the star and detected this huge plume of hydrogen generated around the planet. So then it suddenly discovered, oh, it's got an atmosphere. And of course, what the, the, the leading theory is that this flare basically hit this exoplanet and evaporated the upper layers of its atmosphere so it could be observed by Hubble. And this is just a beautiful example of two space observatories working in tandem, able to detect an event that occurs on the surface of a star 60 light years away and then analyze the, its impact, this, this solar flare impact, which apparently is way more... Uh, powerful than anything our sun can produce, like something ridiculous, like 33 million times 
more power than the biggest X-ray flare our, our star can produce. But it basically then was able to analyze the atmosphere of, a, of an exoplanet again evaporated into space. I think that's a, a beautiful example of how these space observatories all work in tandem. So that was, that was basically the big this morning, and I'm sure there's going to be more as the week goes on. Well, that sounds fantastic. Have, have, have you seen that great graphic, what's on an XKCD, about all the exoplanets that have been discovered yet so far? And the, it was like a, so all to scale and showing all the planets. I mean, 700 exoplanets now, I think, is, is the count. We're adding hundreds a month now, almost, it feels like. It's crazy how many exoplanets are. I think it's actually there. approaching 800 now, isn't it? Yeah, and just so many, I mean, so many different kinds of planets, big ones, small ones, you know, the fact they're detecting atmospheres. We really are in the golden age of planetary... There it is. This is the one. Yeah. Jason, you got it to just seconds before I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all 786 known planets to scale. The beauty. That's beautiful. That's yeah. a fantastic. That's just and, and then there's and then there's our solar system, right in the middle there. <laughs> that's that's where we are. I, right. We have discovered just 768 planets, including the ones in our solar system. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. Great. Well, thanks again. So so I mean, we've already uh, pitched a bunch of stuff for the Planetary Society, but <laughs> but Emily, if people want to find out more about your your work, where can they read you? Planetary.org/blog. Perfect. And Ian O'Neill in the uh, in the great uh, discovery system. Where can we find out more? Yeah, you can see um, where I work at discoverynews.com, um, and I'm the space producer. So have a look on the space side, and there's lots of stuff, including the stuff from uh, from Jason. And um, yeah, it's uh, you can find on there, and also um, the news for astroengine.com. Um, I've now decided to move the whole thing over to WordPress because I was fed up maintaining my own server. Um, so hopefully you'll see more blogs on astro, uh, astroengine.com as well. That sounds great. And Jason, where can we find out more about you? I'm on lightsinthedark.com. Uh, I also write for Universe Today, uh, and as Ian said, Discovery News Space, and uh, you can follow me on Twitter at jpmajor. That sounds great. And of course, you can find out more at uh, my site at universetoday.com. Uh, the next thing we'll be doing is probably a virtual star party on Sunday night when it gets dark on the West Coast. So that'll be probably around 9 o'clock, uh, and then we'll, uh, and we'll go until we've had enough. So uh, that'll be on Sunday night, and we'll see everyone there if you want to watch it. So thanks again mm -hmm. for watching our Weekly Space Hangout. Thanks to everybody who participated, and we'll see all of you next week. <laughs>